One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All of these scenarios were running through our head. He's got a long history of theft, burglary, stolen cars, firearms. His criminal history is extensive. This is an enterprising criminal. He's been around the block. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small-town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Though we realize that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we hope you'll join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good to be back. Such a pleasure. And we have Detective Dave. Good morning. Good morning. And we're very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Detective Jay. I'm excited to be here again. Thank you for joining us this morning. So, Jay, you have a really interesting, rather complicated case for us today. Tell us how this case came to you. So this occurred in 2016. There was a call to our dispatch about a subject in the roadway. You mean like a person? Yes, person in the roadway near a park that's actually very close to our police station. So a citizen calls in and reports that while they were on their way to this park to do early morning exercises, they observed a person laying partway in the roadway Tell me exactly what happened. There's a guy laying in the middle of the road, kind of, like, breathing. I mean, he's back and forth. I think he's a homeless guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to stop, but I just am not comfortable doing that. We're here to exercise. So if you just um, come in the main entrance to mm-hmm. Park, he's just right by the bridge. Um, is he, is the, he, you is know, he lying in the roadway? Or yeah. He, uh, on the, he's kind of on the side, but he's definitely... Uh, he's definitely in the out lane. I mean, you'd have, you would hit him if you were in the out lane, you know, going out. He's still there. I can see him from where I'm standing. 
this type of call for police in our city happens many, many times a day. So there's nothing unique whatsoever. There's somebody who's passed out on the lawn somewhere on the sidewalk laying down, somebody in the roadway. Uh, Just the other day, I heard three of these being dispatched out. Is this because you have a large homeless population? or We do. Our community has very effective services available to homeless people, which causes them to tell their friends, and their friends from other communities come to our community because we have such great services for the homeless. Got it. They actually come on buses. Is that true? Yes. Oh. This park that we get called to, it's a long park. It parallels the river, has lots of running paths, biking paths, and there's a fishing area as well. What time of year is, what season is this? So this is May, and this call comes in at just after 6 in the morning. It's not freezing out. Nope. Okay. And fairly typical of a caller in that situation, they don't want to go up and check on this person because... It's uncomfortable for him. We're used to dealing with that. So I'm sure when that got dispatched, it's like, okay, some guy drank too much last night. He's sleeping where he fell. Right. So patrol officer responds. He comes from our police station, which is less than a mile away. It's a very quick drive and shows up. And as he's getting out of his car, he immediately calls for code three medics, which is emergency response, lights and sirens, because he can see that our person laying in the roadway is covered in blood. Oh, no. So the patrol officer contacts the person on the ground, our subject, and he identifies himself as Stephen. Stephen's laying halfway in the roadway. He is covered in blood, and Stephen doesn't say how he got injured. He's not really communicative. He's losing consciousness in and out as the officer is waiting for the medics to arrive. At one point, is kind of an interesting thing. The officer doesn't know how he got injured, so he starts shining his flashlight up in the tree, which is directly above where our guy's laying, thinking that perhaps he may have fallen out of a tree. Like back to the future. Yeah, you, <laughs> you learn to assess all possibilities on something like this. So he can't see where the blood is coming from. That's correct. And it's not readily apparent, I'm guessing, that he's been stabbed or any other method. That's probably why he's looking up like, this guy's covered in blood and he landed here. How'd he get here? That's right. And it's not a place where you would expect somebody to either intentionally lay down because while it's partway in the roadway, it's next to some shrubbery. While the officer's talking to him, two guys on bikes ride by and they identify themselves as friends of Stephen. They said that earlier in the evening, Stephen had been camping with them near a place called the Tunnel, which is an intersection just a few blocks away. And they said that he was also camping with another guy named Aaron inside the bathroom. This is the bathroom in the park. And they start asking Stephen what happened to him, and Stephen's not responding. So they bike off, head towards the bathroom. And when they get to the bathroom, they immediately come back and tell the officer that there's a huge amount of blood contained within the bathroom. So now we've got two potential crime scenes, one where Stephen had been found and this restroom that's about 250 feet away. The medics arrive and they take Stephen and transport him to the hospital. While on the way to the hospital, the medics talk to Stephen and ask him what happened. And Stephen's not really responding that at some point the medic asks Stephen if he had done this to himself. And then Stephen says, it doesn't matter. And then he was asked again if he had done this to himself. And Stephen said, yeah. That's the last word spoken by Stephen. He bled out. He did, yes. 
He gets transported to the hospital where he's pronounced deceased a short time later. Oh, no. He had been stabbed multiple times in the abdomen, and that was the cause of his death. The patrol officers find where his coat had been taken off by the medics, and right near there is a small pocket knife. And we're talking about a pocket knife with perhaps a one-inch blade. Now, looking at these injuries, including his intestines had started to protrude from his abdomen, it's unlikely that that knife would have caused any of those injuries. Even though he said he had done this to himself, we're thinking that he's not thinking clearly as he's reporting this, or he's trying to hide something because there's no way that little knife had caused those injuries. So next, while the patrol officers are setting up a crime scene, both at the bathroom and near the bridge, where Stephen had been located, the two guys on bikes come back up to the officer, and they contact him. They said there was a male they had seen in the bathroom with Stephen, described him as a male in his 50s, and he had salt and pepper hair, scruffy beard, and they said they spoke with that man, and that man told them that Stephen had been attacked by three masked men. And immediately, this just sounds ridiculous. I mean, really, three masked men come in and kill some guy in the bathroom randomly. So we didn't really believe that story. The two friends of Stephen on the bicycles, we got the idea that they knew more about this and they were minimizing their involvement. Now, there's many reasons why somebody may minimize in this situation is they're probably afraid of reprisals from other people within the community, and they don't want to be perceived as somebody who talks to the police. Are they suggesting that the 50-year-old salt and pepper man in the bathroom just stood by while three masked men stabbed Stephen in the bathroom? That's exactly correct. And that's why we had such a hard time believing this, because this one guy was unharmed, and yet Stephen was attacked, and this guy did nothing to prevent this or stop it. And he's nowhere to be found. He's not in the immediate area of where this occurred. Okay. How many officers are on the scene now? Well, at this point, there's six patrol officers. I had yet to be notified. I receive a call from our sergeant at the time, and I was told there might be a homicide, but he's still alive. When I received the call, he had not died at that point. I get up, get dressed, and I head into a local convenience store on my way, and I bought some coffee and other provisions. And when the clerk rang me up, she told me, oh, that'll be 1249. No way. No way. <laughs> What's funny about that? So 1249 is a police code that we use to reference a deceased subject. As far as I knew, Stephen was still alive. So referencing 1249, I thought this to be quite the harbinger. And the time at this point was 718 is the time printed on my receipt. So I pay for my items, take off, start driving towards the scene. And then I get a phone call from the sergeant says, well, uh, subject's deceased, and he's deceased at 718. <gasps> so he's 1249 at 718. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. I even saved the receipt. Okay, so he's pronounced dead. I head to the scene. I check out the restroom where Stephen had fallen, and I begin to devise a plan with the other detectives. This was my first case as primary detective. I had worked a lot of homicides, but never as primary. So we identify this long path of blood from where Stephen had fallen. There appears to be a point in the middle where he had stopped in between the scene and where he was found, where he expelled a lot of blood. We can't necessarily couldn't tell if it was from him either aspirating or it 
falling out of his clothing. So it's about 250 feet from where he was found to where the crime scene was. The bathroom is littered with blood. There's several spots where there appears to be cast off. Now, cast off is if you were to dip a stick in paint and throw it up, you know, flick it up against the wall, you'd have the blood spots or the paint spots up the wall. Well, we find that there's two spots specifically, one against the restroom wall, and that has a gouge mark and then cast off coming off that in the direction that the knife was used. You mean the knife they probably used on Stephen? Yeah. There's also a concrete bench in this restroom where it appears that this knife had struck the bench, blood had sprayed off of that, and then you can see the gouge mark from the tip of the knife going across the concrete in a different direction. So there's a gouge mark in the wall of the bathroom as well as a gouge mark in the bench itself. Yes. And then there's many passive blood drops throughout the whole bathroom as if someone's standing or walking very slowly when blood's falling. So this park, there are so many avenues for someone to leave the scene. You can go east, west, north, south. You can float the river. You can get across the river by going different directions and using bridges. Right. And it's a huge park that's near a large stadium. I imagine almost all of your patrol officers were heading to that area trying to get in a position to where they can contact pedestrians leaving that area. Your search area, it's going to be wide. We're talking miles. Yeah. And this park and its bike paths parallel the river, which goes for many miles. So there's literally hundreds of avenues that you can depart from this one part of the park throughout the city. We had our lab come out and they sprayed what's called amido black. Amido black reacts with blood and it shows where blood may have been or has been. And we sprayed that whole restroom with that so we could get an idea of if there's footprints in blood, shoe prints, if there's fingerprints in blood that might not readily be available to just the naked eye. Is that like luminol similar? Yes. Yes, it is. You don't need to turn off the lights for amido black, you can just view it in normal room light. And this helped us identify several shoe prints that turned out to be Stevens. But no other unidentified shoe prints, for instance, from supposedly the three masked men or... At that point, we didn't know, but that is correct. We ended up contacting several people later that day and essentially getting consent from them to take their shoes because they had very similar footwear patterns and we ended up buying several sets of clothing and shoes for people because they were of interest to this case. That was nice of you. Yeah. So now we start to look into Stephen. What's he about? Where's he from? What he does? Stephen is from another state. He had come to our town about two years prior He's developed a serious methamphetamine problem. His criminal record is mostly petty crimes and drug possession charges. And he's got open sores all across his face from his use of methamphetamine. And he's not taking very good care of himself. How old is he? He is 25 years old at this point. That day, we made a death notification to his mother. And I talked to her about his history. And she said that he had previously been accused of sexually assaulting a family member. So we go to the autopsy, and during the autopsy, we 
find multiple stab wounds. Most of them are on the left side of his body. And one of the things that we find right next to a stab wound is a tattoo of a bloody knife. And the irony in this case is immense. We also find that he has a broken orbital socket on his right eye. And there's some fresh injuries that are not stab wounds, but look like the skin's abraded. And we also find several defensive wounds on his arms and fingers. And whatever he was attacked with, he had tried to fend off. He also tests positive for opiates, THC, and amphetamines. So we also begin to evaluate his clothing, and we find that his leather jacket that he was wearing have multiple large stab wounds, completely inconsistent with that knife we found on the ground. Again, this mystery pocket knife that Stephen had on him, that's what you're talking about? Yes. These wounds are about four centimeters wide, which is a large knife. It's not a pocket knife. It's not a pocket knife. And the size of the wound doesn't always directly translate to the size of the blade, but they were consistent throughout his coat. So we're thinking that likely this was a very large knife used. Are you saying the size of the wound doesn't always correlate to the size of the knife in general or in this case in particular? Well, in general, because if you were to use a knife and stab something, someone, without the person moving, you would likely get a directly correlated size of injury to the knife. But if somebody's moving, the knife can slice, it can tear. And as in this case, I would think that Stephen was moving around while this was occurring. Right. I'm picturing with the defensive wounds and looking at the photos, this is a frenzy. He's fighting for his life, trying to avoid getting stabbed in the torso. And so he's taking it in the forearms and the fingers. And he's taking a beating, too. He's got a fractured orbit. He's getting punched, probably kicked, and stabbed at the same time. It's brutal. Right. And if you think about it, he's got this broken eye socket, which indicates he probably got punched or hit with something. Somebody who's doing that is probably not going to have a knife in their hands while they're doing it. So does it suggest that there's multiple people and that's consistent with the witnesses saying there's three guys? Or was it a fight and then somebody goes, you know what, screw this, I'm pulling out the knife. So it's confusing and you've got people who are providing information, but you have to evaluate how credible that is the whole time. So it's difficult. Yeah, that's a great point. And in hindsight, I know the answer to that. But at the time, we absolutely did not. And all of these scenarios were running through our head. So when we bring the two guys on bicycles back to the police station, we talk to them at length, and they give us a different version. They said, well, here's the thing. We didn't want to tell you in front of everybody else, but the guy in the bathroom is Aaron. And Aaron's also a homeless male who lives at the tunnel area. And the police had come earlier that morning and contacted several people and given them warnings for prohibited camping because this tunnel area is just a bike bridge and people camp out there because it's out of the elements. And when the officers contacted them, they said, you got to leave. And so Aaron and Stephen both left and went to this restroom, which is uh, about a distance of two city blocks away from the tunnel. So now they're saying it wasn't three masked men, it was just Aaron. Well, no. They're repeating to us what Aaron told them, that it was three masked men. But it's helpful because now you know who Aaron is because police hours prior have already had contact and ID'd this guy. So now it's not a, who's Aaron? We got an ID on him. It's probably the same guy. It's two blocks away and a couple hours prior to that. 
Yep. So we had all of our detective units come out and we had them start canvassing up and down the river bike paths and contact everybody they could to see if they had any information on what had occurred. Uh, one of our detectives contacted Aaron and he denied having anything to do with this and said he didn't know Stephen, but that detective was keen enough to take a photo of Aaron so we could identify people and if we needed to talk to them later, it would help us. Is that something you usually do in investigations? Yes. So a records check of Aaron shows that he has many arrests, about 80 arrests in our community. Wow. And probably another 100 in the state that he's from. Thefts, drugs. He doesn't have a violent history, but he has a reputation of being a fighter on the street. So he hasn't been convicted for any assaults. And as we found out later, he also had a reputation for assaulting people with little notice. Uh, we go through a report and find that he had assaulted another transient at the tunnel area. And that transient had filed a report with the police, and it was still under investigation. It had just happened a very short time prior to this. So you get a little glimpse of Aaron can snap, and he is violent, even though he doesn't have that in his arrest history, certainly his life history he'd probably be a guy where other transients would see him coming and probably veer out of the way. Exactly. Someone of an enforcer type. So we pulled the video from our police cars, in-car video system, and we went back through that. And one of the things we find is that Aaron, who's wearing a bright blue jacket, is seen walking away from the bathroom. So he is coming out of the park. The bathroom's maybe 150 yards, 200 yards into the park, and he is walking away from that as the first officers are arriving. Nobody knows he's involved at that time. They're going for a subject down call, and they don't know he has any relevance. Oh, I see. So the camera catches Aaron walking out of the park while your guy is checking on Stephen, who's laying in the road. Yes. Copy that. Now, Aaron said he was never over by the restroom. He had never had anything to do with Stephen. So this definitely piques our interest because he's lied to us. Somebody has put him at the crime scene. And the other thing is he's also changed clothes at this point. So we send our patrol officers out and they contact him. And turned out he had a warrant and they arrested him for that. And we bring him back to the police station. We interview him and we seize his clothes and give him other clothing to wear because we think he's our likely suspect. And according to these guys on bikes, he was camping with Stephen. He was sleeping right next to him. So feel like you're absolutely on the right track. Yeah. So we write a search warrant for Aaron's backpack and about 3.30 in the morning, mind you, this call came in at about 6 a.m. Now we are the next day at 3.30 in the morning. We serve the search warrant. One of the things we have to prove is identity of the property. So we see that Aaron had written his name on the bottom of the backpack. So there's no issue with who owns the backpack. <laughs> so helpful. A lot of times people will, you know, claim, well, that's not my bag. And then, well, when you write your name on it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. We find a bunch of needles and then we find about a five inch knife. So this is a folding knife and we don't see any blood on that knife. We think it probably been washed off, but the lab can still determine if there is blood on there that's not visible to the human eye. So we're feeling pretty good about this. Aaron was at the scene. He's lied to us. He's seen leaving the scene. And then he changes his story and said, okay, yeah, I was in the bathroom. And he tells us that three masked men came in. 
Aaron said the men told him to stay out of this. And they also said, this is for Andrea. The three masked men said, this is for Andrea. Yes. As they're about to deliver whatever to Stephen. Yes. Okay. Aaron, while in the restroom, says that the three men come in. They start kicking and punching. At some point, Stephen is stabbed. Aaron doesn't render any assistance to Stephen. He says at some point Stephen leaves, and then he leaves the restroom also. So Aaron's stuck in this bathroom while Stephen's getting jumped. Yes. That would be, I mean, the scene to watch that kind of violence and be like, holy shit, they're coming after me next. Yep. And he was warned to stay out of it. Uh, This is a one-way in, one-way out. And there's three guys standing in his way. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are and what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek 
ranked it best customer service in home security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. So we took Aaron to jail because he had some warrants. What were they for? Aaron's warrants were for theft-related charges that he had. He has a drug problem as well? He does, yes. He frequently uses methamphetamine. I think almost without exception, everybody in this case has a relationship with methamphetamine. So we contact other transients in the area, and we try and get a timeline of when Stephen had moved into the area. We talked to a gal, and she tells us that she'd only known Stephen for about a week and a half. And he had come there. He was really nice. The morning of the murder, she said she walked past the restroom and heard sounds coming from inside what she described as the sounds of two people having sex. Oh, or getting the shit beaten out of them? Yes. We don't know, and she doesn't know either. So this gives us some pause while we know what Aaron has told us about these three masked men. We wonder if that's just a jive story he's telling us. Was there some tryst between him and Stephen that went awry and he gets pissed and he kills Stephen? We don't know. And these are all the possibilities that we're having to evaluate as we're going on. But several days later, 
we get contacted by a person who's in our local jail. And Detective Jeremy goes down to the jail and interviews this guy. He says he has some information about our case. He describes himself as Stephen's mentor and said that two weeks prior, Stephen had been assaulted by some other transients and received a very large laceration to his forehead. And the reason for that assault was because Stephen had allegedly sexually assaulted somebody else. And this was a payback for that assault. Is that different than the one his mother told you about? Yes. A different sexual assault? Yes. Okay. And that one had happened years prior, but this one apparently has happened at some point recently. Stephen told this guy in jail that we're interviewing that he didn't have anything to do with it and he was being falsely accused. So this guy we're talking to in jail says that there's this gang around town. Really, it's a band of like 30, 40-somethings they ride around on BMX bikes and use drugs. And they do a lot of tagging, and they'll write all over the walls. This isn't a traditional gang with a structure. They're very disorganized. Are they transients also? Yes, they are, if I think of the broader membership. Probably the most stable housing they have is they couch surf. Yes. So this guy we're talking to in the jail says that another member of the loose gang had contacted him. He claimed to be the sergeant of arms of this gang. And he said that Stephen had sexually assaulted his twin brother's girlfriend, Andrea, and said that she's 17 years old. And the reason he was assaulted was payback for this. Now, they're not actually brothers. They happen to look very similar to each other. So they're not twins and they're not brothers. No. Copy that. But that's how they refer to them. Okay. So... Detective Jeremy comes back to the police station, and he starts to look up Andrea in the computer system. And we find her. And she has some petty crimes. She's on probation, and she doesn't live with her parents. She's kind of been moving from house to house and is currently seeing a guy named Don. Okay. So then we happen to get a call from the hospital a little bit later, and they said that the morning of the murder, about 6.15, they get somebody who shows up who had a laceration to their left wrist. And this guy said he was doing some extreme bicycling down by the river, and he had fallen, and that's how he cut his wrist. And this person had two very large knives on him, and when the hospital employee told this person that, you know, hey, you can't have those in the hospital, he said, that's fine, you can just keep them. So he's trying to get rid of his knives. Oh. So that was very useful information, but it took some time for that person at the hospital to report it to us. And he identifies the patient who showed up as Herman. 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 So not Aaron. I was hoping it was Aaron. It's never that easy. Never that easy. <laughs> So Herman is 41. He's got a long history of theft, burglary, stolen cars, firearms. His criminal history is extensive. I think he's been probably arrested about as many times as Aaron. He's well known in our city, too. Herman happens to be the first person I ever put handcuffs on. Really? Yep. When I first started, he was the first person that I ever arrested. Wow. So Herman has quite the methamphetamine problem. Wind of where he might be staying. It's at this house in the southwest portion of our town. And we contact our detectives through our interagency drug team. And this is a location they're familiar with. So we begin doing surveillance of this house where Herman might be staying. We see somebody who I've 
contacted in other cases in the past and who has provided excellent information for me that's reliable and accurate, and we see that she's leaving this house. We find a reason to make a traffic stop on her. I believe it was a turn signal, and we contact her, and I speak with her. I tell her that I'm looking into this case where Stephen was killed, and she tells us more about who Andrea is and Andrea's boyfriend. She doesn't know what happened. She said she'll get back to us in about a week or so. Normally, I'd expect somebody to just say, oh, yeah, I'll tell you later, to be a total blow-off, but not with her. She's very reliable in that sense. She has her own you know, vices and things that she does, but she is a decent person at the heart. So we start looking up Don. Don, his street name is Infectious. That's his street name? Infectious? Infectious. Hmm. He's uh, 46 years old. He has a long history out of another state that borders our state. He's associated with uh, prison skinhead gangs. He has priors for attempted murder. He, at one point in a coastal community in a state near us, he had been involved in a SWAT standoff after he shot somebody with a 22 caliber rifle. Jeez. He's checking boxes. Yeah, he's definitely piqued my interest. And Don is Andrea's boyfriend, right? Yes. Got it. So, infectious, he sells drugs. That's what he does. He frequently trades methamphetamine for stolen property. This may sound weird, but he has somewhat of a cult following. And he's very well liked within the methamphetamine using community. And he's respected. What do you think garners respect in the methamphetamine community? No, that's a great question, and we actually learned this in the investigation. Uh, a lot of the women in the community who use methamphetamine enjoy his company because he won't rape them like the other drug dealers. So Don is 46, Andrea is 17, and they're a couple. Well, she's not actually 17. That's what was on her record. She's actually 15. Andrea is 15. Yes. Don is 46. Yes. So that's a crime. That's one of the many things we're looking at in this. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the real story about Don is that his ego has outpaced his legend. He thinks he's able to do things and get away with things that are well outside of his reach anymore. Petty drug dealing, he can get away with that for a while, but he's written checks that he can't cash. Now, one of the things we do is we start doing a background check on Herman. We just assume that he had a food stamp card, 
And we pulled the records on that and found that he went to a grocery store just a few blocks from this house that we started to watch. And in the surveillance, you see that he is buying an almost entire paper grocery bag filled with steaks. So it's like he's preparing for a big party or something. And he also has, in the shopping cart in this footage here, he has a powder blue BMX bike in the cart. In the cart? In the cart. So he's in the store, and he is loading up his shopping bag after he's gone to the self-checkout line, and he had wheeled his bike in, in the cart. So that sort of sticks in our mind. Is he preparing to leave town? Is he throwing a party? We don't know. So the other thing we do is we pull video surveillance from all these businesses near where the crime scene was. And there's not a lot of businesses that have video surveillance because it's a park. And there's so many ways to get out of that park that it makes it very difficult. But we pick the area that's closest to downtown. So we know that Herman has been to the hospital. So we basically draw a line on the map from where this murder occurred in the park, across the river, all the way through downtown, towards where the hospital is located. And we hit nearly every business there. And we end up with five total. And it's several miles from there. The first one is from our local utility. And you capture the two guys on bicycles coming down the hill and riding through their parking lot. Then we get one from a federal courthouse in our jurisdiction. And you can see two guys on the bikes. Now, the video is not the quality of which you can identify somebody, but you can tell what color his bike is, and you can tell what color the other person's bike is, and there's a silver and a powder blue bike. It's our man Herman. And our man Don. There we go. And so then the next thing, our local bus company, they have video on all of their buses. We know that the bus company actually has amazing video. That's what we've learned on this podcast. Hooray for the bus company. And that it is, because... About 20 minutes after Herman checks out of the hospital, he's seen downtown riding past a bus on his bicycle with Don. And at this point, you can see that he has something wrapped around his wrist, his left wrist. A bandage, perhaps? Bingo. Aha. So by pure happenstance, we happen to be up in the DA's office talking with our prosecutor about this case, and we come across Jude. Now, Jude is... Herman's daughter. And I'd had previous contacts with her and was aware of her criminal history. And I asked the prosecutor whose file folder just happened to be sitting in his door. I said, hey, what's the deal with Jude? Why do you have this here? It's like, oh, she got picked up in an adjoining state for a parole violation. I'm like, really? Well, that's interesting. Okay, where is this? So I do the research and I contact the local agency that had arrested her on a parole violation. And they send me a packet of the report, and I read through this. And she was arrested in a stolen car after trying to shoplift from a Walmart, and that car was stolen from our town. So I'm starting to put things together mentally, and she flees town. And who's she with? Why does she do that? This seems out of the ordinary for her because she spent her entire life here. How old is she about? Mid-20s. Okay. So we find out that she was also contacted with three people. And these three people were on this road trip with her, as is outlined in this report. And I recognized one of the names immediately. And the other person I do a records check on and find that, oh, yeah, he's from our town. And then the third guy just seems totally out of place. And I look him up, and he has no record. He's a professional. He's never been arrested. And 
I said, there's no way this guy was in this car in this state with these people, stolen car. And it just doesn't make sense. So I contact him. I just cold call him. I felt that comfortable about that this was not him in this other state. And I said, hey, were you recently in this other state? He said, no, I've never been there before. I've never even heard of that city. I said, okay, well, do you by chance know Herman? He said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we know Herman. He's my half-brother. So he said, yeah, the family's ostracized him. We don't have anything to do with him because he was stealing from us. So then it all makes sense that Herman, when he was in this car, just gave his half-brother's name because at the time, Herman had warrants for his arrest out of our community. Oh, my God. I'm assuming he didn't have ID on him, so they couldn't check it against anything? Well, you can tell somebody somebody else's name, and if they don't have a way to verify it, the officer might not go the extra mile to confirm that, but they can certainly find out if a record exists for somebody. And he might, as a family member, he might know his social security number. He might know things that the officer, you know, if he doesn't go the extra mile to check a DMV photo to make sure it matches the person he's contacted, he's like, all right, what's your social security number? Okay, what, what's this? What's that? And you give the right answers, and he's like, well, I, I don't have any reason to think that he's lying. He's, everything matches up. I see. But you got to go the extra mile, right? <laughs> Herman is an enterprising criminal. He's been around the block. Yes. He can play the game. This is not his first rodeo. And from everything we've heard so far, this is nobody's first rodeo. Though one could argue it's actually Stephen's last rodeo. Yeah, I said it. Detective Jay, thank you so much for assembling all these pieces for us. That is a complicated picture, but you have painted it beautifully. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Stay tuned, Small Town Fam, for part two coming next week. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.